If uh, you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Luke 17. Luke 17, and uh, we'll be focusing on a very interesting little passage, verses 7 through 10. In God's providence, and it is his providence, America has a national holiday called Thanksgiving. For many without the Lord, it's a time when people stir up feeling of general warmth and well-being for what they for what they appreciate. Now maybe they direct that warm feeling toward a nebulous higher power. But for Christians, Thanksgiving is not a once a year activity. We are commanded often in scripture to be thankful. Our brother Huey reminded us that this morning with Colossians 3, 15 to 17, which I'm not going to read now, but three times there we are commanded to be thankful. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. And that giving thanks is God's will for us. The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Scripture is clear, and we could add many more verses, that we have an obligation even to be thankful. But what do we do when we feel shamefully unthankful? Maybe this is a year where you may have struggled with that even more with the many disappointments of this past year. Our mouths can form the words as we pray at a meal. We know that we should. Or maybe when we raise our voices in song together, we feel strong enough to sing thanks. But deep down, we know that we are battling with with discontentment. Our minds confess the, 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 the theological truth that all we deserve is judgment apart from Christ. We know that. But our wills are less willing. We may not even mean to, but we toy with with mutinous thoughts that we deserve to be treated differently than what God has planned. Whether it is that we deserve more pay, deeper friendships, more respect, newer toys, happier children, better health, more thanks from those whom we serve. We never verbalize it, but we think, when we start thinking those thoughts, that we'd make better, wiser masters than Jesus Christ. And without knowing it, our joy gets strangled by our own arguments of entitlement. We're caught like a fish in a net that we've weaved, and we've weaved this net for ourselves with, with if-onlys and what-ifs and why-not-me. And eventually, if we don't fight for thankfulness, God's word influences our thinking less and less. And we start rotting in our own complaining. We begin to wander through our days like Israel wandered through the wilderness, dissatisfied. It says in Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers 
It cost nothing because they were slaves. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And they sound kind of silly, right? They say, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And maybe some of you feel that way as you think back on the pre-COVID days. They were so amazing. This morning, by God's grace, we'll take one path to reset a discontent heart. And I'll say one path because there's many paths you could take. One is to focus on God's nature. We could, and that's a great path. His sovereignty, his wisdom, his justice, his goodness, that's a really good path. Another path would be to read through a, 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 one of the letters in, in the New Testament, like one of Paul's epistles, and make a list of all the blessings which are yours in Christ Jesus. That would also be a really good path. A third path could be study what the Bible says about hell. That also would be a really good path. That's what we deserve. But this morning, we're going to work together to uproot this weed, this strangling weed of entitlement by focusing on God's grace in making us his servants. We're going to focus on God's grace in making us his servants. And we're going to begin by looking at Jesus' challenging words in Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. And along the way, we're going to see three actions to take instead of grumbling when we think we deserve better. So three actions to take instead of grumbling grumbling when we think we deserve better. Now, this is far from an exhaustive list. I'm sure you could just brainstorm and come up with your own much longer list, but it's a starting point. And it's going to focus this morning around serving. In Luke 17, 7 through 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 10. It's, a, it's again, it's a really interesting passage, and, and it's kind of even tough to figure out the context of, because it looks like Luke may have compiled a, a, a series of Jesus' sayings about being a disciple, but it's even tough to figure out the flow. Preceding this, in verses 1 through 6, there's some, 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 some commands that Jesus gives, which are difficult to follow, and maybe that's why he says this next in verses 7. Now, before I read, I do want to give a little, uh, uh, a little background. As Jesus so often does when he's teaching, he's going to use a picture from everyday Jewish life. And he's going to use it to illustrate a, a profound truth. He's going to use the word servant. And the word translated servant, or as you see in your notes, and, and, and I think that both NASB and ESV has this, it's, or bond servant, this word can also be translated slave. These servants were owned by someone else. And whether that was for a period of time, years at a time, or their entire lives. Now, slaves in the Jewish world and much of the ancient world were often treated better than, 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 than during what we think of the American slave trade. And because of that, the word slave can, can really make us think about the American slave trade. And that's too harsh of a word for how most of these slaves were treated. And yet, honestly, servant, if you think of kind of a show set in, you know, the early 1900s in Britain, you know, people serving, that, that's too soft of a word. They relied upon their masters for their living, but these servants or slaves also were depended upon by their master. 
Now, this topic of, of slavery is just such a, a common part of Jewish life that Jesus doesn't really even set up this story. He just begins with, with three rhetorical questions. And he doesn't give any further background. Let's look at the first of those in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus asks the first question, Luke 17. Will any of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? And the assumed answer by everyone Jesus spoke to would be an emphatic no way. A master would never have a slave come and sit at the table. That would be reserved for family or, or, or welcome guest. The servant wouldn't expect to sit at his master's table, even after his hard day's work. In verse 8, Jesus asks the second question. Will he not rather say to him, the master say to his slave, prepare supper for me and dress properly, change your outside clothes and bring on your, your serving dinner clothes and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Now to this rhetorical question, Jesus assumes an emphatic yes. Of course the master is going to say that. Now you've done your outside work, come and do your inside work. This is the, 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 the typical expectation that a master would have of his slave. Instead of sitting down to dinner, the slave would have to first prepare his master's dinner and, and wait on him during the meal. We would not go to a restaurant and say, hey, waiter, come and sit with us and enjoy dinner. That's not why we're there. In verse 9, Jesus asks a third question. Again, he, he knows what the answer is going to be. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? And the assumed answer is again, no. Of course, the master doesn't thank the slave. Now, immediately not saying thank you kind of jars against a, a, a polite American culture where some of us say thank you every time the waiter puts in a little bit more water into our cup, right? So this seems really bad to not say thank you at all during this meal. But, but a, a Greek dictionary helps a little here. The word translated think comes from the same word that we get the, our word grace. Okay? It comes from the same word we get the word grace. And when used this way, the, 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 the lexicon defines this word as a, a response to someone being generous. Or, 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 or to someone going overboard, doing something kind. When someone's being gracious, the response is this Greek word, thanks. The master's not going to say, wow, thank you for your generosity. You really went overboard making my dinner. See, this kind of gratitude for a slave would be inconceivable in the ancient world. The servant's not doing anything that deserves praise. The servant is just doing their duty. Now, Jesus doesn't ask any more rhetorical questions here. Instead, he reveals the attitude he requires from all who follow him. So he uses this really simple picture, and then he reveals the attitude that Jesus requires. Luke 17, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you also, 
when you've done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What attitude must we have when we follow Jesus' commands? What attitude must we have when we devote ourselves to his teaching? When, when, when we embrace the great commission he gave as the purpose of our existence, we must have an attitude of humility, a heart that responds, we are unworthy servants or unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. The word unworthy can have the sense of of, uh, of un of unprofitable. We're, we're unprofitable servants. Now, if, and I'm going to bring up an impossible if here. If, and this is an impossible if, if we could pay back God, if we could pay back God for creating us, if we could pay back God for sustaining us, if we could pay back God, which we can't, it's even a horrible thought in a sense, for redeeming us, if we could pay him back for all of his grace to us, which we can't, we would only then be breaking even, right? We, we can't pay back God for all of his grace. But if we could, we'd only be breaking even. We still wouldn't be profitable to him. But we can't give God what God is due, much less bring any profit to him. In a sense, he's not getting a good return on his investment by making us obedient, Now, he is bringing himself glory. So there's a whole other aspect to this. But our attitude should be, we are unprofitable servants. We must be quick to say, I don't deserve praise. You haven't gotten your purchase price worth out of me. I've just done what was required. I'm still in debt to you, God, not you to me. The root of this word unworthy is the same that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the runaway slave Onesimus to his owner Philemon in the book of Philemon. And he talks about Onesimus. He does a play on this word here. Formerly, he was useless to you. And it's that word unprofitable or unworthy. Useless. And that's because he was a runaway slave. It leads us to our first action to take instead of grumbling. And I know that this is not your typical Thanksgiving message, right? You just list the number of things to be thankful for, but we're getting there. The first action to take instead of grumbling remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. If you're taking notes, write that down. You may have to think about that for a little bit. And I'm going to try to unpack that. Remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. Now, I want to recommend caution here. Because many passages of Scripture describe our attitude toward God. We are to love him, and we're to rejoice in him, and we're to cling to him, and we're to take refuge in him. In this passage, Jesus is warning against one kind of attitude. Jesus is warning against a proud conviction that our obedience puts God in our debt. 
We cannot put God in our debt to save us. We can't do enough good things to deserve our salvation. We can't put God in debt to save us. Neither do we put him in our debt by obeying him after he saves us. We're not doing anything generous when we obey. We're not doing anything going above and beyond when we even obey in hard sacrificial ways. We're just doing our duty. See, Jesus is exposing our misconceptions that we deserve because we obey. He's exposing, now sometimes we think we deserve even when we're disobeying him. How much worse to think that we deserve when we obey or, or, or because we obey, or I don't know if that's worse, they're both bad, that we deserve because we obey. See, there's no going overboard in our obedience toward God. If, if we obey from the second our alarm rings to when we can't keep our eyes open any longer, if, if, if our day is just jam-packed with obedience, we're just doing what God requires. We can't over-obey God. We have no room to demand anything from God. We can't demand salvation from him, but neither can we demand from him any creature comfort. We have no right to demand financial security from him. We have no right to demand health from him. We don't have no right to demand a, 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 an attainment of any kind or, 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 or a degree of success in our lives. We have no reason to demand any praise from men or any certain kind of relationship or any earthly blessing. We don't have a right to these things. Why? Because we are unworthy servants. And, but remember, I'm going to say, remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. Jesus commands us to embrace this self-evaluation. I am an unworthy slave. So what would I complain about? Now, this response that Jesus commands of us, and, and, and it really is just this fantastic little passage, um, is, is theologically deep. It reminds us that humans are by creation slaves. Right? Really. We are owned by God, created to do the work that God assigned. We might not like that word. Maybe that's because of all of the horrors of American slavery. I think some, we just like our independence, though, too. We are by creation slaves. It's not the only thing we are, but that is what he made. He, he, he made us. He owns us. And then we do work for him. So we are slaves by creation. But it also reminds us that we are, are by nature, rebellious slaves. By birth, after Adam's fall, we are by nature rebellious slaves. Slaves that have run away against the best master in the universe. Slaves who have sought to overthrow our gracious master. Slaves who have attempted to establish rule over our own lives despite the horrible consequences of doing so. In seeking to be free from God, we became slaves of sin and slaves of Satan and slaves of death. Listen to how scripture describes our condition before redemption, before God releases us through Jesus Christ from slavery to sin. 
John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's John 8, 34. Or Titus 3, 3, Paul describes our condition before redemption. We ourselves, we were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Ephesians 2, 1-3 describes our condition. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, doing what the world does, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our attempted independence had only made us worse slaves. Romans 3, 10 through 12 is written, There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. And then he says, Together they have become worthless, useless. They're not bringing any profit to God. That's the same word here. No one does good, not even one. As runaway, rebellious slaves, all that we deserved was judgment. And Jesus describes that judgment in Matthew 13, verses 41 to 42. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and really all of the runaway slaves, and throw them, verse 42, into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the judgment that's coming upon you today if you have lived your life running away from obedience to God unless you turn to Christ. In hell, every soul will be eternally consumed by endless complaints, not just judgment, but the complaining will never stop. There will never be satisfaction. Every soul in hell will have an unrelenting confidence, I deserved better. A soul in hell is an eternal slave of grumbling. The captivity never stops. See, the gratitude of the unworthy servant begins by remembering that we were once traitorous, treacherous servants. That we were servants deserving of execution. That we were abusers of our master's goodness. That we were constantly stealing from him to fund our rebellious exploits. But if you have repented of your self-will, if you have repented of your disobedience, if you have believed in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, then you have redemption through his blood. You have been rescued from slavery to sin to become slaves of God. And this is why we remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. That is God's grace that we would say, I'm just an unprofitable slave. I don't bring anything to the table. See, that's God's grace working in our hearts. We have been freed from slavery to self and have become slaves of Christ. The New Testament authors delighted in calling themselves a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ. Do you delight in, self, in calling yourself, I am Christ's slave? 
This day is Jesus' day. Their go-to self-identification, these New Testament authors, it was a reminder that they don't deserve the grace of submitting. That's God's grace working in their hearts. They were grateful for the grace of being slaves. See, becoming God's servant is inseparable from the hope of the gospel. That is what God's grace is doing in our lives. That is part of the gospel call. It is to repent from being a slave to sin and say, I will follow Christ. And listen to what Jesus says about the one who follows him. John 12, verses 25 to 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The one who rejects slavery to sin and accepts slavery to him. And he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Following Jesus is being Jesus' servant. 1 Corinthians 7, 22 to, 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 to 23, Paul talks about how those who were free have become bondservants of Christ, slaves of Christ. He says you were bought with a price and that price is the precious blood of Christ. Romans 6, 19, he, Paul calls us to uh, present ourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, as slaves of God. Before Christ, before God does this remarkable work in our lives, it's impossible for anyone to say, I've done my duty. We were reckless slaves. We were trashing our owner's property, sometimes including our own body. If we worked, it was for our glory. But now, now that we are in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, God's grace is transforming us into people who embrace slavery to Christ. By his grace, we can humbly look at our love-motivated obedience to his commands. And we can evaluate our, our real sacrifice, not our perfect obedience, but true obedience. And we still only say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. I don't deserve anything, Lord. Do you see how complaining comes in and how our hearts should overflow in thankfulness? I got a cup of coffee this morning. I'm just a slave. I don't deserve anything. We get to meet with masks on outside, not in our church building. I'm just a slave. I don't deserve anything. When, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And listen to, 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 to what he was to say to Pharaoh. Exodus 7, verse 16. <clears throat> the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. God rescues us from slavery to sin to bring us into his service. Christ ransomed us from the, the horror of slavery so we can learn the joy of slavery. He rescues us from the horror of slavery to sin so that we can learn the joy of slavery to him. And it took a much greater Passover than that which rescued the slaves from Egypt. It took Christ, the Lamb of God, taking away our sins on the cross. God's grace in purchasing us for slavery to Christ does not give us a right to our preferences. If we suffer for him, do we gain a right to complain? 
If we spend our lives making disciples, can we then demand our comfort? No, even then our attitude must be. We have to train ourselves to say this. This is why Jesus commands us, say this. We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I'm thankful to be used. Saints, God doesn't owe us anything. The apostle Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, got this. It's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 6, 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I've been thinking about that. Why content about that? Well, if our master graciously provides us with what we need for his service, we have all we need. We get to serve our master, Jesus Christ. If only, and this is a good if only, if only we could grasp the miracle of God's grace in rescuing rebels from slavery to sin, and making them his slaves. If only we could keep that in our minds, how little we deserve this privilege, how we could never deserve this privilege of being reconciled to him as our king. Thanksgiving begins with the privilege of serving the king of creation at the cost of his son's blood. We've been brought into the king's service. We have a job in his court. I get to sweep in his court. I get to fill the king's water cup. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. How can we fail to give thanks? This is for the big thing. And then he gives us all the little things. Now, perhaps, and that first point will be much longer than our second two, Perhaps some of this talk of slavery still feels a little cold and harsh to you. You come this morning like, I wasn't expecting this. If we forget our master's goodness, slavery might seem like drudgery. You might wake up and just see another day in God's coal mine swinging a pickaxe, doing what he wants. But Jesus is unlike any other master. And this leads us to our second action to take instead of grumbling when we think we deserve better. When we're tempted to grumble thinking we deserve better, the first action was remember the grace of being an unworthy servant, right? That that's God's grace, that we get that, that I get to serve him. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, no way. Remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. Two, wait for the king to serve his unworthy servants, Okay, that was already mind-blowing, point number one, at least I think. Point number two, wait for the king to serve his unworthy servants. So that doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right to me. Wait for the king to serve his unworthy servants. What's going on here? Well, listen to this most amazing passage. Again, from Luke 12. We serve a good God. Luke 12, verses 35 to 40. And so Jesus is talking about being ready for, for his return. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Their master's out late so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And then Jesus says in verse 37, Luke 12, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, the master will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. 
Luke 17, there said he Jesus was saying, No master ever does that. Here Jesus is saying, That's the kind of master that I am. Verse 40, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What a mind-blowing promise. The servants who simply do their duty are served by their master. After, and we know that in this parable, Jesus Christ is the master. After his return. Now Jesus knew, that's shocking for first century Jews. Shocking for us when we're distanced from that. The world's social order was just turned upside down. But when we start to put this in context, the end time reality of what Jesus is saying, this is even more shocking. This parable requires us to be faithful servants until Christ returns to reign on this earth as the universal king. And when he returns and we stand before him, we'll no doubt say, when we see him in his glory, we're unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Yeah, we stayed up till you got back, but we're unworthy servants. We just did our duty. But then Jesus will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. We wait in humility and faith. We wait knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We wait as slaves knowing that their master is going to come back and serve them. Christ will serve the faithful. And part of me, like, I don't even have a place for that. Like, in my thinking. Saints, we might be tempted to complain. But this earth, this life now is not where our reward is. You may be dishonored in this life, but Christ will honor you when he returns. He will reward you for the labors he's liberated you to do. He liberates you to work for him, and then he comes back and serves you. Matthew 25, 21, in Jesus' parable of the talents, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much and turn to the joy of your master. John 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And we see this beautiful end time picture in Revelation 7, verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We wait for a king who's going to serve his unworthy servants. So these are the three actions we need to take instead of grumbling. We need to remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. We need to wait for the king to serve his unworthy servants. And third, reflect on how the king has already served you. Reflect on how the king has already served you. While we seldom imagine our returning Christ serving us, right? Like that's just outside of our category of thinking. We think about him on a throne. We think about him separating sheep and goats. We don't think about 
him serving us. See, but heaven hasn't changed Jesus' nature. The gospel reveals our king as he is now. Though not in all the glory he now has, but that's still Jesus. In Luke 22, Jesus once again asks a rhetorical question about who serves at a table. We see that in Luke 22, verse 27. For who's the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? We all know, right? The one who's greater is the one who reclines at the table. Is it not the one who reclines at table, the one who's sitting down? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus defines for the disciples what true greatness is. It is being a servant. Similarly, in Matthew 20, verse 28, even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the only servant who did more than his duty. Jesus was the only servant in all creation ever who did more than his duty. On the final night of his life, and I kind of hope this has been lurking in the background of your thinking, Jesus visually illustrated the shocking reversal. John 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And Jesus washed the feet. And it doesn't say this. That was end quote. But Jesus washed the feet of Judas. If you were there, he would have washed your feet too. This foot washing by their master was shocking. And they didn't consider themselves his slaves. They, they were his disciples. But it was still shocking. But this foot washing, it's just the door opening up a crack to peek into the full extent of Jesus' service. It, it, just, it just opens it up a little bit. We're, we're, we should be blown away by it. But Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, makes it even more amazing. It talks about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on, to use for himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus took the form of a servant, of a slave, because that is what humans are. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most shameful death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, what right have we to complain what right have we to feel entitled when Christ humbled himself for us? Our hearts should soar in thanksgiving when we reflect on how the king has already served us 
even if every other blessing in our life were suddenly taken away and all of us were suddenly couldn't hear and couldn't see and couldn't smell and couldn't feel and, 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 and were thrown into prison and every conceivable blessing were com- stripped away. Christ has already served us. So when you are tempted to complain, when you are tempted to think that you deserve better, remember the grace of being an unworthy servant. Wait for the king to serve his unworthy servants and reflect on how the king has already served you.